You're listening to the Human Rights Podcast hosted by the Irish Centre for Human Rights. This is a platform for open dialogue and debate on issues related to human rights and international law. I'm Kelsey Brood, and on today's episode of the Human Rights Podcast, we will be hearing from Professor Beth Vanscock. Professor Vanscock is the Leah Kaplan Visiting Professor of Human Rights at Stanford Law School and a faculty affiliate with Stanford's Centre for Human Rights and International Justice. She has an extensive track record in practice, having worked with numerous civil society actors, government bodies, and international organizations. Prior to her return to Stanford, she served as the deputy to the ambassador-at-large for war crimes issues in the Office of Global Criminal Justice of the U.S. Department of State. She has also been a member of the U.S. Department of State's Advisory Council on International Law and served on the United States Interagency Delegation to the International Criminal Court Review Conference in Kampala, Uganda in 2010. Her work has also been widely published, having written many books and articles on topics relating to human rights, public international law, international criminal law, and international humanitarian law. Today, she will be speaking to us about her new book titled Imagining Justice for Syria, and published by Oxford University Press in September of this year. Thank you so much, Professor Van Scock, for taking the time to join us. It really is a great privilege to hear from you today. Wonderful. Thanks so much for that warm introduction. Good morning, everybody. It's really great to be here. Um, so this is a book um, that I produced actually after my experience in the State Department. I joined the Office of Global Criminal Justice, which is the really the hub for war crimes and crimes against humanity work within the U.S. government, right as the Syrian conflict was transitioning from a sort of Arab Spring uprising met with violence from the Assad regime to much more of a classic insurgency civil war situation and coming up with US Syria policy around international justice issues, which a big piece of my portfolio. And I spent most of my time in government trying to move these ideas forward, both internally within US policy towards the Syrian conflict, but then also with our multilateral engagement with partners within the United Nations, et cetera. And I'm you know, sad to say I accomplished very little when it comes to that. And so this book was my effort to at least not leave everything that I learned and everything that we worked on sort of, you know, in the back of my brain, but rather put it out there as a series of blueprints um, that can be picked up by others who are trying to move the ball forward in Syria, but also in other conflict and post-conflict situations. So the book itself, after a brief background to the situation in Syria, devotes a chapter to each one of a number of accountability mechanisms that we have, thinking about international institutions versus domestic institutions, criminal law processes versus civil law processes, and then also devotes a couple of chapters to documentation writ large and the importance of documentation undergirding any of these accountability mechanisms, and then also the idea of transitional justice more broadly beyond criminal or civil accountability. So I'll talk through basically the whole book. (laughs) So the book is premised on the fact that the situation in Syria poses an acute and some would say existential challenge to the international community's commitment to justice and accountability. As we know now, virtually every international crime that forms part of the international penal code has been committed in and around Syria. So the Syrian people have witnessed and been subjected to deliberate and indiscriminate and disproportionate attacks, the misuse of conventional, unconventional and improvised weapon systems, 
industrial grade custodial abuses in a vast network of formal and informal prisons, unrelenting siege warfare, the denial of humanitarian aid and what appears to be the deliberate use of starvation as a weapon of war, sexual and violence, including the sexual enslavement of Yazidi women and girls who were trafficked from Iraq, and also the sexual torture of detained men and boys. The intentional destruction of really irreplaceable cultural property. Thousands of Syrians remain missing, many of them the victims of forced disappearances. The longstanding taboo against the use of chemical weapons has been repeatedly flouted. And the sectarian nature of the violence has raised the specter of genocide against ethno-religious minorities. Violence in the region has contributed to the biggest exodus of refugees since World War II. Now, throughout all this, the Syrian battle space has been a crowded one. As the revolution unfurled, the regime of President al-Assad stood accused as the main culprit of these international crimes. But anti-government actors have not escaped censure and have also been faulted by with committing their own breaches of humanitarian law, notwithstanding receiving all kinds of trainings in laws of armed conflict, and also issuing in the beginning a sort of righteous proclamation of principles, cloaking themselves within promises to adhere to the laws of armed conflict. That said, really any allegation of equivalency between the regime's depredations and the war crimes committed by the, the domestic Syrian opposition is I think really an artifice. It is the Bashar al-Assad who is the main culprit here. Now, of course, the emergence of the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, Daesh, ISIL on the scene really triangulated the violence and brought it to an even more alarming level of brutality. ISIL has often also served as a kind of a bridge between the wars in Syria and what's happening in Iraq, given the high degree of conflict spillover in the region. And then of course, we cannot ignore the involvement of Western powers on opposite sides of these conflict. They're at once adversaries when it comes to the regime of um, Bashar al-Assad, but they're also allies as against ISIL Daesh. And so this has really complicated matters on the ground and of course in the air and generated new risks to civilians. And then of course we have to add Turkey into the mix. So all told, the conflict has been so destructive and the crime base so massive and the pool of potential defendants so voluminous that existing institutions have really not been able to adequately respond. The crisis in Syria also marks a real abject failure of the international system of peace and security that was erected in the post-World War II period. The Security Council has been almost entirely incapacitated by the propensity of Russia to wield its veto against nearly every coercive measure of any consequences, including legal accountability, that might have been imposed on the regime of the Syrian president. As a result, other actors, both within and without the United Nations, have really endeavored to find inventive ways around the geopolitical impasse in the Security Council. This forced creativity has generated a number of innovative institutions, legal arguments, and investigative techniques aimed at advancing justice and accountability for Syria wherever possible. And this really is what my book is about, is trying to capture this intense creativity on the hand, by, at, at the hands of justice entrepreneurs around the globe. So although the political resolve within the international community around how to bring the fractured conflict to an end has not really materialized, there have been unprecedented investment efforts in documentation. Indeed, the Syrian conflict is now the most well-documented international crime base in human history. While documentation, of course, is not an accountability mechanism in and of itself, almost any transitional justice response is gonna benefit from and even be dependent on the accurate and comprehensive documentation of crime base and linkage information. So we've seen this happening in a number of different fora. 
within the Human Rights Council, they created a fact-finding mission, which was then sort of upgraded into a commission of inquiry. This has been gathering information throughout the conflict and actually submitted a list of names of putative perpetrators to the High Commissioner's Office with onward, the idea being that it would be forwarded onward to the ICC, the International Criminal Court, or other courts with jurisdiction. There are a number of other fact-finding and investigative bodies that are tracking the uses of chemical weapons and even apportioning responsibility under the auspices of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, which is not normally considered an accountability mechanism, but it's really taken on a new role by virtue of its members expanding its charter to enable it to undertake this new function. We also see coming out of the General Assembly, a really innovative body, the International Impartial and Independent Mechanism to assist in the prosecution of the most serious crimes of international concern committed within the Syrian Arab Republic. We call it the Triple IM. This was in, um, since March, 2011, has been doing its own investigative work, but also serving as a sort of a um, clearinghouse for the documentation efforts of others in an effort to identify a kind of common corpus of documentation, deconflict, remove duplicates, find the best evidence of um, crimes committed in particular incidents, and then be available to share with prosecutorial authorities around the globe. In the non-governmental realm, we have multiple organizations, Syrian and international, that are adding to this massive cache of potential evidence. And here we see a new civil society documentation model that has emerged in the form of the Commission for International Justice and Accountability, CJA. This is a privatized investigative team that's collecting potential evidence largely in situ, but also on open from open sources, preparing proto-indictments against perpetrators, producing analytical briefs um, that sort of outline some of the background issues, including the chain of command, order of battle, history of attacks, et cetera. All this is happening even in the absence of a ready forum in which to admit such evidence or a clear path to justice funded largely by foreign governments. Um, it's a new actor, a new model on the scene here, um, different from the sort of grassroots um, or more human rights oriented documentation organizations that have been long active in this space. The Syrian conflict also coincided with really the explosion of social media and the ubiquity of smart smartphones capable of capturing the commission of international crimes from multiple from perspectives. So from the grassroots, we've had citizen journalists uploading millions and millions of digital images, thousands of hours of footage of the carnage. And so the ability of ordinary people to contemporaneously record potential evidence on their phones has created both opportunities and honestly challenges to accountability, particularly given this enormous volume of unverified and in some respects unverifiable data. Because the Assyrian revolution has played out on social media, we've developed new technological tools to capture, authenticate, deduplicate the millions and millions of digital images that are now available on the internet. And most intriguing is the possibility that some of this digital information, given the utility of the metadata that's embedded within it, if that can be frozen in time at the point of capture, might operate as a substitute or at a minimum at a supplement to witness testimony. And we know that witness witnesses are really the soft underbelly of the international justice system. So the formation of everything from the triple IM happening in the General Assembly and the multilateral stage, 
and CJA, um, a mission-driven non-state actor, both carrying out normally statist functions of revealing that sovereign states no longer enjoy a monopoly on criminal investigative law processes. And these, these developments really indicate a striking willingness on the part of sovereign states to outsource elements of their prosecutorial process and work in, in partnership with non-governmental and multilateral institutions. Now, the assumption was that all of this information would lay the groundwork for a whole range of transitional justice mechanisms in the event that there was ever a political transition in Syria, including criminal trials against those deemed most responsible. So far, however, the reality is that documentation has served as largely a substitute for justice, and it's unclear whether, when, or where all of this information gathered will be systematically transformed into hard evidence in a court of law. And many factors have contributed to this really entrenched impunity. So an impenetrable Russian veto has prevented a referral of the situation in Syria to the International Criminal Court. That said, there are novel theories that have emerged for how the ICC could proceed against at least some of the actors within the conflict zone, even if it cannot ever access, exercise its full, the full reach of its jurisdiction in Syria. These include animating the ICC's nationality jurisdiction over foreign fighters who hail from ICC member states. This involves focusing on continuing crimes that involve the imposition of transboundary human suffering on the territory of other ICC states in the region, for example, Jordan, um, in the tradition of the Myanmar-Bangladesh investigation. And then convincing the council to refer the ISIL situation to the court, even though ISIL now no longer controls territory or enjoys any real attributes of statehood. So far, however, none of these have come to fruition um, and the prosecutor herself has declined to move forward on the basis of nationality jurisdiction. Now, although the failure of the ICC referral effort marks a real disappointment for many human rights advocates, it's not clear that the ICC is best positioned to deliver justice for Syria. For one, there's the sheer magnitude of the criminality on display and the limitations of the court's subject matter jurisdiction, particularly around war crimes committed in non-international armed conflicts. There's some real disparities there between war crimes in international versus non-international conflicts. In addition, um, the shortcomings of prior Security Council referrals are really legion. Besides the obvious problems associated with the council exercising political control over the court, detractors will point to controversial textual elements within the resolutions in the past for Darfur and for Libya that were really deemed essential to achieve consensus, but are deeply problematic when it comes to concerns about equal justice. So for example, the provision effectively of immunity to personnel for non-member states, the failure of the council to provide any meaningful follow-up to effectuate its referrals, particularly when it comes to the arrest of suspects. The fact that the referrals amounted to an unfunded mandate given um, barriers to using UN assessed funding to fund investigations arising out of security council referrals. And so in, for all of these reasons, the security council referrals have been described by court insiders as a sort of poisoned chalice. And also the limitations of the ICC are becoming increasingly apparent as Cases fail as their resources become even more thinly spread as state cooperation withers. And so given the nature and scale of the harm, even though the ICC was supposed to obviate the need to produce new standalone justice mechanisms, I don't think there's any question that a dedicated ad hoc tribunal with subject matter jurisdiction over the whole range of war crimes committed in non-international armed conflict, plus crimes against humanity, genocide, et cetera, in many respects offers the best alternative here. Now, new theories have emerged for how to accomplish this. And these are drawn from the Nuremberg precedent after World War II and more recent past practice. And that these do not depend on a, either a consensus within the Security Council 
or Assad's consent, neither of which we know will be forthcoming. So most intriguing is the potential for a subset of states to pool their independent you know, internal respective jurisdictional competencies to create an ad hoc institution that would be the, you know, greater than the sum of its parts. They could also um, create another international institution exercising effectively a form of collective universal jurisdiction over crimes that are unmistakably subject to international jurisdiction under customary international law. And these models are sort of reminiscent of the Nuremberg Tribunal. The General Assembly could also potentially continue to build out the triple IM into something that more resembles a true prosecutor's office or tribunal. Um, obviously, it would not have the ability to exercise enforcement jurisdiction, but it could issue recommendations, proto indictments, etc. Or you could imagine it conducting a sort of a uh, a trial that then could be adopted or ratified by the domestic state that had custody over the accused. There was some thinking that the League of Arab States might be um, encouraged to create a regional tribunal. We saw this with the African Union, with the special um, extraordinary African chambers that prosecuted Hisan Habre arising out of the Chad situation. Um, before Assad reasserted control over the majority of the opposition areas, there were also talks about holding trials before specialized chambers in liberated areas in Syria or in neighboring states with varying degree of international involvement. And there was also an idea of creating a kind of a shell of a special chamber that could eventually be inserted into the Syrian judicial system as a sort of a turnkey model, again, though, dependent likely on um, uh, the existence of a true and genuine political transition. All of these models could incorporate various um, elements of hybridity, including when it comes to staffing, procedural law, substantive law, et cetera, all of course subject to the limitations of international human rights law when it comes to criminal procedure and potential penalties. Despite all of these ideas that were floated, discussed, debated, et cetera, a concrete proposal for such a tribunal really has yet to emerge. Now, the inaction here is not necessarily all do blame, can, can, can all, all be laid on the, on the feet of Russia, um, although it did abuse its veto, veto prerogative. There's no question about that. It was decisive, at least when it comes to the Security Council. Many states, however, really remained fixated on the idea of an ICC referral, despite the obvious and unyielding obstacles to that endeavor. And this singular focus on the ICC, I think really eclipsed other worthy avenues of accountability that might have been pursued. There is also, to be sure, um, persistent ambivalence around um, the potential for vigorous criminal responsibility and accountability to complicate the hoped for peace negotiations, which of course never emerged, and also future processes of um, reconciliation. There was also concerns that any accountability regime that would be set up might sweep in the personnel from other states, particularly Western states that were gradually ramping up their involvement in Syria. And then finally, states have been really wary of creating a tribunal without either the council's approval or Syrian consent. This is a new precedent that might be deployed against powerful states through other kind of multilateral configurations. And so for all of these reasons, hybrid and ad hoc tribunals really have not emerged because they didn't have sufficient diplomatic support. And so this has not been, uh, there's been no progress here. Domestic courts are to a certain extent filling the accountability gap 
by invoking in an, a large array of domestic jurisdictional principles, not always to their full reach, but more than ever before. And indeed, the conflict has really helped to revitalize and re-enliven the principle of universal jurisdiction, which had been in retreat in the last couple of years, following a sort of backlash launched by powerful states. Um, you recall the situation that happened in Belgium, where they pulled back on the reach of their universal jurisdiction statute after the United States threatened to remove NATO headquarters from Brussels, et cetera. So the exercise of various species of extraterritorial domestic jurisdiction has been really facilitated by the incorporation of international crimes within domestic penal codes, robust regimes now of mutual legal assistance, greater cooperation between dedicated national war crimes units, the formation of joint investigative units between nation states, and ultimately the inexorable integration of European criminal justice systems. And we're seeing a newfound sort of interoperability between non-governmental organizations, multilateral criminal investigative mechanisms, and domestic prosecutorial authorities. This sort of architecture is bridging the public and the private and contributing to new coordinated, really a system of international justice. Now, I've done a quick survey of some of the cases that are moving forward now in domestic courts, and there's some really interesting observations here and, and trends, and I'll just quickly touch on them. I'm happy to go into them more in the Q&A session. Um, first, the charges really trend toward um, terrorism charges rather than what we would think about as international crimes, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. Um, second, we're seeing a lot of single issue or discrete war crimes charges rather than sort of large or systemic cases. Um, third, we're, there's some really interesting gender dynamics here. Very few of the cases moving forward involve sexual violence charges, although we know they have been legion within Syria, especially in detention centers, but not only in detention centers. There's large quantities of relevant evidence. However, we just, the cases just haven't emerged and the, the witnesses and the potential perpetrators haven't emerged. Most defendants are men, although we know that there are many women who have joined ISIL and there are some cases involving women. Um, there's actually a case here in the United States, Samantha El Hassani, who was charged with and ultimately pled guilty to providing material support for terrorism. But she was also involved in purchasing Yazidi children on the open market who then were abused by her late husband. There was lots of efforts here, particularly on the part of the Yazidi community. Um, I was involved as well, working with our war crimes unit to try and encourage them to expand the charges against Samantha, not just the terrorism charges, but to think about how to use our human trafficking charges, our slavery statutes, our war crime statute. She's a U.S. citizen, so she would fall within our war crimes jurisdiction, etc. That did not happen. They, uh, um, the single charge was material support for terrorism because she transported money and material internationally to her husband who was billeted in, um, in Syria. And so she ended up pleading out to that particular charge. Many women in some systems have been treated as victims, which may be true. I think there are plenty of cases of women being duped, um, but they also may be based, frankly, upon sexist assumptions about the role that women can play in armed groups and even intensely misogynistic ones. Um, most from the trends in terms of the level of perpetrator, most have been more low level rank and file type cases rather than the true architects of violence and those most responsible. The latter have simply not traveled to jurisdictions where cases are moving forward. That said, there are a few exceptions happening in Europe and Germany, which is um, exciting and interesting to watch. Um, fifth and troubling, the vast majority of cases are targeting members of the opposition or ISIL rather than Syrian regime personnel. 
Um, it's just this asymmetry um, is very much a, a function of sort of who has left the battle space, uh, but it's a real source of controversy, frustration, and disappointment within this growing Syrian diaspora. Um, that said, we are seeing these sort of so-called structural investigations by national authorities that are looking more broadly at the crime base and are prepared if and when they're able to assert jurisdiction over more senior regime figures. Um, I think I'm up to six. <laughs> um, all of these cases are relying upon the documentation work of civil society actors, including CJA, but also grassroots Syrian organizations. Um, and these lawyers from Syria are assisting with these prosecutions, creating a sort of new kind of hybridity. Um, and then seventh or eighth, um, much of the evidence that is being used has come from the defendant's own social media profile. So we have a number of cases going forward involving the desecration of a corpse because you have an ISIL member holding the severed head of a you know, member of the Syrian army or someone else or stomping on a dead body on the ground. We don't have sufficient evidence that that person actually committed the underlying act of murder, but we have the desecration of the corpse. And so we have new law being developed around these particular um, crimes. And I think in terms of long-term impact, we now see national authorities developing a track record of invoking their international criminal law and humanitarian law provisions to address the, the presence of perpetrators in their midst. And so there's a new kind of state practice and opinion juris developing around international criminal law and just a confidence to bring these cases, which we've not seen in the past. Um, and finally, I think also important to note is that many of these cases came to light by virtue of tips from refugees about the presence of suspected Syrian war criminals among their ranks. And so it really is a testament to the need to create um, productive relationships with refugee communities, building trust and genuine connections within all of these diaspora communities, because they're really essential for these cases to go forward. Now, while important, these domestic proceedings remain episodic and opportunistic. They're not, as I mentioned, representative of the full scope of international crimes that were committed in Syria. And if the goal of comprehensive accountability is, is there, then these results may be disappointing. But I think they're also establishing important precedent, providing um, prosecutorial authorities with valuable expertise in how to prosecute these cases. They are offering a measure of justice for victims. They're denying perpetrators safe haven. They're punishing individuals for horrific acts. And they're ultimately promoting some stability in these territorial states, preventing victims and victims groups from feeling like they have to take justice into their own hands. And even singular cases can be highly salient and can really exert a kind of a multiplier effect, signaling that justice is possible, helping advocates overcome political resistance elsewhere, et cetera. So although limited, I think these results really should be celebrated. Um, I'll close by just noting that there have been some efforts at civil redress as well. So not criminal, but, but civil um, accountability. Now we know, of course, there's no notion of state criminality under international law. So really the only option is to seek civil claims. Um, and we now have a new case before the International Court of Justice under the Convention Against Torture that has been brought. This was long in uh, an effort um, looking for a state that would be willing to step forward and bring Syria before the International Court of Justice. And so that remains to be seen how that plays out, but it's, we're just on the cusp of that case.
Here in the United States, we have a couple of statutes that allow victims to bring tort suits against perpetrators. There have not been any against individual perpetrators because they haven't been located here, in part because President Trump closed down our um, refugee and asylum situation. But even under President Obama, we just didn't, we don't have the presence necessarily of accused here, or at least they haven't been identified yet. However, under our Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act, we do have an exception for state sponsors of terrorism which Syria has been so designated since I think 1979. And so human rights lawyers brought suit on behalf of the family of um, Marie Colvin, who was the intrepid war correspondent and won a $300 million judgment against the state of Syria for her extrajudicial killing um, and assassination early in the war. And so here, you know, in closing, we, we have a sort of paradox. We have this proliferation of investigative innovations. It's really a good news story. But the less sanguine trend is also apparent that these new multilateral justice mechanisms, to the extent they're being developed, are weaker than those that have been developed in response to historical tragedies involving mass violence. And so we went from you know, the ad hoc tribunals, which enjoyed a Security Council provenance, duties of state cooperation, to now we have the IIIM, which is doing incredibly important work, but it is, has no coercive powers whatsoever. It's dependent upon the cooperation of states. And there isn't really an outlet for justice. It's still ultimately a documentation and analysis mechanism, not a true prosecutorial mechanism. And so that is really where we've, um, we've fallen short as an international community. And so Syria um, has really emerged as a test of the international justice, um, the system of international justice and the ability of the international community to deliver accountability. And we've largely failed. But as I mentioned throughout the talk, there are these sort of silver linings, good news stories. And part of what my book is about is really trying to highlight those and think about ways that they can be scaled, um, both within the Syrian context, but also when it comes to other situations of mass violence where, for whatever reason, the ICC is foreclosed or the Security Council is unable to activate. And on that note, once again, thank you so much, Professor Van Skok, for joining us today to discuss your new book, Imagining Justice for Syria. Once again, I'm Kelsey Root, and this has been the Human Rights Podcast, hosted by the Irish Centre for Human Rights. Thanks for listening.